0: Hi everyone, I'm Josh and this is The Emerald Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens. The podcast where we explore an ever changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald All that's happening on this green jewel in space. When I was a teenager, some family friends and I went on a road trip to the Hopi nation in Arizona to witness a few days of sacred dances and celebrations. Hopi's about a seven-hour drive from where I grew up in Santa Fe, and my friends were connected to the Hopi leadership. And so we had the honor of meeting David Monongye, an elder of the Hopi snake clan, the holder of the fire clan tablets. You can look him up, a leader who advocated for a profound return to nature, and a re-evaluation of our relationship with the natural world long before everyone was advocating for these things. While some were still laughing at the idea of the intricate connectedness of all life on the planet, David was speaking of the delicate balance of natural systems. He lived to be over a hundred, some even say a hundred and seventeen. I remember him there, sitting in his chair, blanket around his shoulders, glasses on. I remember him there. This trip was a long time ago at this point, so the images that come to me when I think of it are pretty faint. I remember the Hopi kids were determined to challenge me and my friends to rock-throwing contests, and we had several of them. It seemed pretty serious, like our reputation was on the line and our worth was being measured by how far we could throw rocks. So yeah, I had a pretty sore arm by the end of our time. So there's that, and I remember the view of the mesa, the pueblo way up there on the rock among the skies and summer lightning. I remember the view across the desert, the sound of the pounding feet of the dancers, the repetitive drums and rattles that went on all day. But there's one thing that stands out the most that conjures up a particular feeling that I can still feel in the skin of my neck and the pit of my stomach. It was a warning that was given to us right before the ritual dances began. One of our Hopi friends let us know to be on our best behavior and our highest levels of alertness during the dances. There's going to be runners and whippers and clown kachinas, he said. They'll knock people on the ground if they aren't paying attention. They'll throw sand in your face. They really like to knock tourists over. It's the one time they can. So when you're a teenager, this is the kind of thing that can make your imagination go a little wild. Runners and whippers and clowns. I didn't even really know what that meant, didn't have a cultural reference for it, especially because the runners and whippers and clowns, I learned, were sacred. They were part of the ceremony. So you had these rogue forces, forces of chaos and yet justice, trickery and disruption, who were not only at this very, very sacred and serious ceremony, but were part of it. The clowns could be found at times during the sacred rituals making fun of everything that was going on, hurling dirty jokes, entering sacred spaces backwards. The runners and whippers, dancers in trance, might blindside people, throw sand in their faces, carry them off, kicking and screaming. Disruption, opposition, debasement, yet all part of the ceremony. In the world I came from, clowns were clowns. They did clown things at parties and circuses when people were expecting clowns. There weren't clowns at religious rituals. There weren't jesters gobbling up the communion wafers and thumbing their noses at the priest during Catholic Mass. It was hard to imagine. Yet, this is exactly what these clowns were doing. Why? Well, I survived the runners and whippers and clowns. I did see someone get flattened, but I avoided that fate myself. I remember the yucca whips cracking and the high-pitched chirps and yells of the runners. I remember the clowns telling jokes to uproarious laughter. But I mostly remember that I spent a lot of the weekend looking behind my back, peering anxiously down the narrow alleys. That feeling, you know, there's someone out there. Roaming the back alleyways, disrupting the normal order, disrupting the agreement that we normally make with each other as members of a society, disrupting the audience contract as it's called in theater. Someone is here, a presence, a gleam in the dark, a chuckle, the shine of a gold tooth. And he's hungry, and he's broke. And his old Ford pickup is broken down and the radiator's leaking. And he's stumbling backwards into the sacred spaces. And he's winking at your wife. And he's pocketing the holy offerings to snack on later. And there's a whiff of antinomian danger all about him. Someone is here. He's been around a lot these past few years. Have you felt him? Who could it be? Growing up in the southwest United States, you hear a lot about tricksters. You hear about Coyote, the perpetual vagabond, whose stories stretch across the western states and even up towards Canada, where somewhere along the way he becomes raven. I remember peeking into a book of coyote tales when I was a teenager. I was into myth, of course, Lord of the Rings, Indian myth, Lakota myth, Taoist myth. So I was interested in this very sacred folklore from these very sacred native traditions. I got about two pages and six penis references in and shut the book. I guess I wasn't quite ready for detachable flying coyote dicks to be sacred. Tricksters populate global mythology. You've heard of some of them. Coyote, Raven, Loki, the duplicitous Norse antihero. Now a global movie star thanks to the Avengers and Tom Hiddleston. Old Agutampa, the Tibetan trickster, who runs away from some trouble or other and puts on some maroon robes and hides out in the Buddhist nunnery. And then a few months later, the abbess wonders why all the nuns are starting to mysteriously get pregnant. Eshu from Yorubaland who hangs out at the crossroads making deals. Anywhere things might take an unknown turn, where fate intersects with chance, he's there. The trickster's right smack in the middle of the Greek mythic culture, too. Hermes, communicator, culture creator, whose first act was to pick up a random tortoise shell and invent music, and his second was to steal all of the sun god's cows. He's wily, trickster, and he's dangerous, and he's often uncouth. He rips a hole in the established order of things. He picks the pockets of the gods, rummages through the trash heaps on the lower slopes of the central mountain of the universe looking for leftovers. When does Trickster show up? He shows up when things get too serious, when orders get too rigid, when structures refuse to look at their own dirt. Along comes Trickster, the disruptor, the pointer-outer of hypocrisies, the flinger of shit. As Lewis Hyde says in his definitive book, Trickster Makes This World, quote, Trickster is the mythic embodiment of ambiguity and ambivalence, doubleness and duplicity, contradiction and paradox, Trickster is a boundary crosser. Every group has its edge, its sense of in and out, and trickster is always there at the gates of the city and the gates of life, making sure there is commerce. Many cultures, like that of the Hopi, recognize the essential and valuable role that trickster plays. Trickster is a refresher of worn-out systems, a challenger of idols that have gotten far too holy, and there is a place for him within the ritual Because systems need to ritualize their own disruption and renewal, or they rot from within. I'm going to say that one again. Systems, organizations, societies, communities, political parties, spiritual orders, even individual bodies perhaps, need to ritualize their own disruption and renewal, or they rot from within. Mm -hmm. So any ism that comes along and gets a little too rigid, Trickster's going to come and test the boundaries. Anytime a social structure gets too comfortable resting on its own laurels and gets reluctant to look at its own dirt, Trickster shows up. Anytime we think we've found the one worldview to rule them all, Trickster says, not so fast. He's the culture disruptor. And the disruption he creates causes new cultures to be born. And so he's the counterculture the true counterculture. But that doesn't mean he's left, right, or center. He's not prone to favor progressives over libertarians. He shows up exactly in response to dominant views that need to be challenged, no matter their affiliation. And that's what's key. He's not on our side. Trickster jumps sides. That's what he does. He shows up exactly to the places he's been excluded. He is the mythic embodiment of the other side. He asks, how are you in relation to the other side? So if I start thinking that my politics are untouchable, or that my worldview is beyond reproach, or that I'm the best ally that's ever been, and really the problem is all those other people out there, well, Trickster comes along to introduce me to my own dirt. What do we do when met with such a rogue? If we're smart, we'll find ways to involve Trickster, to include him in our sacred rituals, to give him a role, or at least a meal. Or he might just tear the whole thing down in a mass of shit-flinging and fire. Today on the podcast, the Disruptor, the culture creator, is afoot. He's here, he's there, he's everywhere, exactly where we least expect him. He's looking to fill his belly and take unsuspecting gods out at the knees and he's got a message. Not for other people. Not for those hypocrites over there, or those high and mighties over there. He's got a message for you, and me, and all of us. Trickster jumps sides, disruption and the anatomy of culture, this time on The Emerald. (laughs) So, yeah, this episode is about mythological tricksters, old and new. And one of the things about Trickster, as you can probably already tell, he's crass. He's offensive. So this episode has some crass content, sexual, scatological, all of it, because that's how Trickster rolls. And because he rolls that way, Trickster ruffles feathers. He exists specifically to ruffle feathers, in fact. So, if you ruffle easily, this may not be your episode, and if you listen anyway, and you find your feathers getting ruffled in any of this, just remember, it's not me, it's Trickster. Also, I'll be referring to Trickster generally as he, because the large majority of mythic Tricksters are, in fact, he's. The reasons for this are worth another discussion, but that's for another time. So, without further ado, here he is. Say hello. To Trickster. There's a story from Japan from the Shinto tradition about the Sun Princess Amaterasu and her brother the Storm God, who I'm going to pronounce as Susanoo. that sums up Trickster pretty quickly. Each year the Sun Princess has a great harvest celebration. It's like the Met Ball of the Shinto Pantheon. Everyone shows up for this solemn celebration in which everything must be in its proper place. In order. And then little brother shows up. He disrupts the sun goddess's rituals. He plays havoc in the rice paddies. He sets up false boundary stakes so people don't know whose fields are whose. He breaks down the earthen dikes. He lets wild ponies loose to play in the water. And for his pièce de résistance, he enters the pristine palace where the first fruits of harvest are there to be tasted and he takes a big dump and strews his feces all about the hall. In some versions, right on his sister's throne. This mayhem causes the distraught sun goddess to retreat to a cave, and so the world darkens. And then, of course, the light returns as she emerges from her cave in spring. So the trickster storm god here, like the storms he rules, is the disruption responsible for the very cycle of change. He drives the sun back so that she might emerge again. It's hard to get more contrarian than defecating in the midst of the holiest ritual of the year, and so this type of myth might seem bizarre... If it weren't absolutely everywhere in mythic tradition, uncouth characters who disrupt the social order pervade global myth, and not only do they make mischief, thumbing their noses or lifting their kilts at solemn ritual tradition, but they are simultaneously held as sacred, essential to the order even though their fundamental role is to disrupt it. Here's Bird Gibbons quoted in the foreword to George Carlin's Napalm and Silly Putty, and they said of George Carlin as a side note that every time he met a sacred cow, he went cow tipping. Quote, Many native traditions held clowns and tricksters as essential to any contact with the sacred. People could not pray until they had laughed, because laughter opens and frees from rigid preconception. Humans had to have tricksters within the most sacred ceremonies for fear that they forget that the sacred comes through upset, reversal, and surprise. So, in some Indian communities in India, there is ritualized obscene talk on the first night of the holy festival. The Orokaiva of Papua New Guinea have ritual clowning and laughter during mortuary rites. Hopi ritual clowns enter the plaza backwards, climb down ladders head first. The Aghoris of India eat impure substances, drink forbidden drinks, sleep in dirty places. The Zuni clown initiates literally eat dirt. Dirt is the trickster's currency because they do everything by opposite. As Aaron Thompson says, quote Another set of ritual behaviors are those known as rituals of reversal. They can include the reversal of speech or actions, eating with one's left hand, walking backwards, or the transposition of social roles. Some of these reversals accompany ritual laughter. Hopi and Navajo ritual clowns engage in these type of reversed actions. Some scholars have proposed that ritual reversals were also present during Greek festivals in honor of Dionysus. Yes, ritual reversal in Western tradition extends back to the time of ancient Greece. As Thompson explains, there are hundreds upon hundreds of ancient Greek vases that depict scenes in which the gods are being mocked. And most interesting of all, these vases are ritual vases. So in Greek tradition, like in the Hopi traditions, you see... Mockery is an integral part of sacred ritual. Participants in many ancient Greek rituals were expected to mock the gods, expected to hurl dirty jokes, expected to engage in sacred disruption. Ritualized trickery happened on the road to Eleusis, as Jan Bremer tells us, when initiates were neither at home nor at their destination. Quote, The participants were now in that transitory stage of betwixt and between, which is often characterized by reversals and confusions of the social order. And indeed, during the journey, the young mocked the old. At the bridge over the river Kephisos, a prostitute hurled mockery at the passers-by, and the wealthier women who rode in buggies reviled one another. Across the pond in northwestern Mexico, the Mayo-Indian rituals feature Capacobam ritual clowns that appear during Lent. Costumed and masked, they patrol the Lent processions. Sometimes they act as guardians for the image of Christ. At other times, they enact ritual mockery, even pretending to defecate upon the cross. As Thompson says, a spectator might shout out to a clown, How well you danced today! To which the answer might be, probably because I f-ed your wife last night. This might sound like fun and games, but it's also serious disruption of an order which is ritualized into that order. And why is this disruption so sacred? Here's Lewis Hyde again, The old wisdom would say that this debasing of the god is a necessary part of his periodic renewal. The Shinto storm god intervenes to save the divine, or really rather a society, from its own too-elevated purity. But we currently have no collective form, no agreed-upon narrative to guide us in such an operation. And therefore, because the need for this kind of renewal does not go away, we are periodically forced to make something up. This last sentence is key. We currently have no agreed-upon narrative to guide us in such an operation. So, for us, in the modern world, Trickster doesn't show up with a defined role as a contrarian, as an honored mudhead during a sacred dance. He shows up differently. Depending on what orders have gotten too rigid, depending on what sacred cows need tipping, depending on how a society has failed to deal with its own dirt. Mm-hmm. Look at the history of most societies and you can see this force of disruption and the cultural shift that comes with it. In the U.S., the classic example is the 1960s, an era when Trickster was out in full force as a direct response to the stifling culture of the 50s. I mean, what could be wrong with the 1950s? The war was over, people were procreating, America was prosperous, all the families on TV sure looked happy. Leave it to Beaver and the Suburban Dream. But deep... In the cultural underbelly, something was brewing. Some need was not being met. Something was hungry. One of the catalysts of the 1960s movement was a group that called themselves Pranksters. The Merry Pranksters were founded by young author Ken Kesey, who wrote the opening scenes of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest while high on peyote. Kesey participated in a government-funded study of LSD at Stanford a couple of years earlier, and had his mind blown wide open. This is a clip of actual audio from Kesey's first experience with LSD from the film Magic Trip.
1: How are you feeling right now? Is he, yeah. do you seem to feel there's still some effect of the drive? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, my. I told you, about the strobe light it was so great. What was the effect of the strobe light? It was like a magnetic force field you know, because everything that okay. went to was concentric, going into mm-hmm. the strobe light. Bats and, eggs and, everything into
0: the and from that experience of mind being blown open came the want for the whole culture to blow itself wide open. His partner Ken Babs says, quote, Kesey and George Walker and I were out wandering around and the rest of the gang were sitting around a fire in Kesey's house in La Honda. And when we came back, it was dark and Mike Hagan called out, halt, who goes there? And just out of the blue, I said, "'Tis I, the intrepid traveler, come to lead his merry band of pranksters across the nation in the reverse order of the pioneers. And our motto will be the obliteration of the entire nation. Not taken literally, of course. We won't blow up their buildings. We'll blow their minds. So, yeah, reverse order of the pioneers. Take the principles of the Founding Fathers, even the direction they traveled— and throw it in reverse. Kesey wanted to see what would happen when, quote, hallucinogenic-inspired spontaneity confronted what he saw as the banality and conformity of American society. So they painted a big bus in psychedelic colors and named it Further, which epitomized the merry prankster's goal, a destination that, quote, could be reached only through the expansion of one's own perception of reality, end quote. This is classic trickster. We want to disrupt culture. We want to reverse the order of things. And Trickster, of course, is the patron saint of such road trips. Hyde says, He is the spirit of the doorway leading out, and of the crossroad at the edge of town. He is the spirit of the road at dusk, the one that runs from one town to another, and belongs to neither. There are strangers on that road, and thieves, and in the underbrush a sly beast whose stomach has not heard about your letters of safe passage. From Kesey's pranksters came the Kool-Aid acid tests, and a little backyard party band called the Grateful Dead, and then the hippies and the anti-war movement, and the birth of psychedelic rock. Counterculture birthed at least partially from a ragtag group of pranksters. It only came out much later that the Stanford study that had blown Kesey's mind wide open was part of a CIA initiative called MKUltra, a massive mind-control experiment with LSD as its main tool. And so, in classic trickster fashion, what started as an attempt to control minds became the catalyst for a massive movement to open them, a massive disruption of culture. LSD, the ancient bread mold, working its way through neurons and bloodstreams and communities and nations as trickster, the disruptor of culture. LSD as trickster, fungus as culture disruptor. Think about it. Think about just how much of our current culture comes from the great culture disruptor known as LSD. And I don't just mean artistic culture or the fact that some people now have long hair and that's okay. I mean computer science, coding, the internet, climate science, immunobiology, cellular biology, advances in modern psychiatry, modern trauma therapies, all of these have been directly influenced by the cultural mindset of the 1960s, and that cultural mindset came from people taking LSD. And this is an interesting thing about the relationship between science and culture. Science only finds what culture points it to, And culture only began pointing science to the interconnectedness of all things once people felt it through spiritual experiences they had on LSD. The culture disruption of the 60s is responsible for a huge amount of what we take for granted as culture today. So... It's just a note to be careful before we mock the weird, the magical, the seemingly irrational, the unfamiliar. It might just end up creating culture. Don't discount the culture disruptors, even if they don't see things the exact way you do, or even if they sometimes seem in opposition to what you think or believe. The pattern breakers, as Tyson Yonka-Porta calls them, are responsible for a lot of what we call culture. Here's what anthropologist Wade Davis had to say about culture and acid.
1: You know, I, I find it interesting that when we look at the social changes, the transformation of the roles of, of women, the attitudes towards gay people or people of color, attitudes towards the earth itself, I mean, there's been a, absolutely a sea change in my lifetime mm. uh, that's, that people you know, who aren't 65 like I am may forget. But one of the things I find fascinating as we look at this sort of wave of illumination sweeping over our society, and the, the one... Ingredient in the recipe of social change that is, at least until recently, has been sort of expunged from the record is that tens of millions of us lay prostrate before the gates of awe, having taken some psychedelic. I I think it's fair to say I wouldn't understand the essence of cultural relativism. I don't think I treat women the way I treat women. I certainly wouldn't as a kid from my background in in kind of tough country in, in Canada. Come to terms with homosexuality as reflexively and and innocently and fearlessly as I did. At the same time, my my attitudes towards the the natural world, the way I write, the way I associate words, the way I put words together, Mm. I think all of this was informed by the taking of of plant entheogens that cracked open the sky and opened wide the windows of the mystic and it's funny because back then i remember the standard line from all of our parents was don't take these substances you'll never come back the same and what they didn't understand is that was a whole bloody point (laughs) and you know these substances were inherently subversive they did threaten the established order i think to this day for example we are still dealing with the consequences of that fundamental culture clash and the red and blue i mean I mean, if you look at American politics in particular, what is the really divide all about? It really comes down to a division between those for whom those changes were seen to be deep threats and to those who felt that those changes were long overdue.
0: What do we do when culture disruption comes from other directions? Directions we don't particularly like. For many years, the progressive left was very comfortable in its self-appointed position as the counterculture. We regularly debased and ridiculed the gods of the right-wing mainstream. Some even got government grants to do so. Andres Serrano caused a massive stir in the early 90s when he took NEA money, photographed a crucifix submerged in urine, and called it Piss Christ. Lighten up, we shouted at rigid conservatives who frothed in response. Your gods aren't that holy. I've got a good friend who went to George W. Bush's inauguration in a clown suit and somehow got seated in the third row. He ritually mocked the entire solemn proceeding. Me, I was outside protesting, throwing rainbow skittles at Bush's motorcade next to a kid with a mohawk and a sign that read, Down with Up. And maybe, just maybe, we all got a little comfortable thinking Trickster was one of us. You know, we're the ones who are anti-establishment. We're the ones who are toppling the order. It's good to feel like Trickster's on your side. But be careful with that. Because remember, he's Trickster. And Trickster jumps sides. Before you know it, you might be the order. And someone might be trying to topple you. (laughs) 2021 kicked off in the United States with a massive riot at the Capitol building, and it caused shockwaves through the cultural landscape. But I think some of the biggest shock for those who identify as progressive or liberal was that we're used to being the culture disruptors. And here, all of a sudden, was a big culture disruption, and not on our terms. There's an indelible image in most people's minds from the Capitol riot, the guy in buffalo horns and face paint, the QAnon shaman, he's sometimes called. And the first thing I thought when I saw the image of the QAnon shaman prancing around the Capitol building was, I have no idea what this guy's ideology is at all. And to tell you the truth, I'm pretty sure I don't want to know what his ideology is. I certainly don't hold him in any high regard. But what I took note of was that this was something weirdly unfamiliar, disruptive, to definitely offensive, a mishmash, not summarizable with the terms right or left or conservative or liberal or progressive or Nazi or Antifa or any of it. It was chaos. And so the next thought I had was Trickster, the disruptor in the halls of power. He's back, and he's back as exactly all the things I don't like. So to be crystal clear, because these days you have to spell things out pretty clearly, I'm not saying anything positive about the actual shaman guy, whatever his name is, that he's some mythic icon or force for good or something like that. No, I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying, if you understand Trickster to be the one who disrupts, who in the process pushes all your buttons, who takes a dump on everything you hold sacred, who challenges all your most cherished tenets, that pisses on your crucifixes you couldn't have come up with a more archetypal image. Here we had a white guy wearing sacred ceremonial buffalo dancer garb so that everyone gets outraged and cries appropriation, who then calls himself a shaman so that everyone gets even more outraged and cries, he's not a shaman. And then he goes and insists on organic food in prison so that everyone gets even more and more outraged and cries, look at the privilege with this guy. And it's not just the left pissed at him, even the Nazis and Proud Boys are pissed at him for being the indelible image from the riot. Everyone is pissed. This is the trickster archetype showing up in its full glory. The toppling of all of a society's sacred cows at once by a buffoon. So I'm saying that when we don't find a place to honor Trickster along the way, this is what we end up with. A menace. We end up with the dark clown. We end up with Joaquin Phoenix going nuts in front of a mirror. We end up with terrorist. We end up with shooter. In their ritual inclusion of trickster, the Hopi and Zuni understood something. You want to keep this guy fed. You want to keep him close by. You want to let him fulfill his role within the larger scheme of a society. Because if you don't, that oppositional force might come back as chaos, revolution, upheaval, mayhem. So the chaos we're facing now as a society is not random. It arises in response to societal conditions that call for disruption. When our society fails to include, when we marginalize, when more people go hungry, in all senses of the word, when we have institutions or movements that see themselves as unassailable beyond reproach, that don't ritualize their own disruption, that don't ever hang out the laundry for a refresh, that don't look at their own dirt, this is an invitation for trickster to show up in uglier and uglier ways. So, yeah, we have a complicated relationship with trickster. We like it when we're the ones saying, your gods aren't that holy to the folks on the other side. But how are we when someone says it to us? Because it's easy to say that their gods need taking down. I can really see how those evangelicals over there are hypocrites. I can really see how the corporate overlords of this country need a good waking up. I can really see how the other side sucks. I love it when it's other people's gods being submerged in urine. But what do I do when Trickster comes for my gods? He will. And you can be sure Trickster never shows up how we want him to. If he did he wouldn't be Trickster. If Trickster showed up as the perfect ally who used all the right language at all the right times, he wouldn't be Trickster. If Trickster was perfectly aligned to your cause, he wouldn't be Trickster. Trickster's not going to play by those rules because Trickster isn't interested in grand causes or fixed ideologies. Trickster's motivation is far more simple. He's hungry. He's got to eat. Trickster needs food badly. Quote, there are large devouring forces in this world, and Trickster's intelligence arose not just to feed himself, but to outwit these other eaters. So yeah, the appearance of Trickster isn't because one side is right and the other is wrong. He doesn't care about the purity of causes. As the Greek muses once said, all human music and philosophy is flawed because it is attached to bellies. Some might see just, unjust, my side, your side, liberal, conservative. Trickster sees opportunities for his next meal. Trickster doesn't care if you have facts on your side, because facts are nothing compared to food. When societies get hungry, that's when Trickster shows up, sniffing out around the dumpster, crashing the hors d'oeuvre table, Dan Aykroyd shoving a whole salmon into his Santa suit. What do I mean when societies get hungry? Hungry for food, sure, and hungry for connection. Hungry for art, hungry for spirit, hungry for change. Some need isn't being met by any of the dominant cultural movements, by either what is archaically termed left or right. Some dirt isn't being addressed, and Trickster's there to tell us about it. From Hyde again, quote, All this material from the ancient tales to these modern psycho-spiritual battles raises the question of how any order, spiritual, secular, psychological, should relate to its own dirt. And Hyde goes on to tell one of the stories of Raven from Sitka, Alaska, quote, In the story, Raven steals water from the stingy Petrel, who has an endless supply but will not share it with the thirsty world. Petrel vigilantly guards the spring where the water bubbles up. He keeps it covered. He sleeps beside it. Raven tries to get Petrel to leave his hut by telling him tales of all the wonderful things happening in the world. But Petrel is suspicious and won't move. That night, Raven sleeps in Petrel's lodge. Early in the morning when he hears Petrel sleeping soundly, he goes outside, takes some dog shit, and smears it all over Petrel's butt. As the sun rises, Raven cries out, Wake up! Wake up, my brother! You shat all over yourself! Petrel runs from the lodge to clean himself, whereupon Raven takes the cover from Petrel's spring and begins to drink. As he flies away, water falls from his beak and becomes all the great salmon rivers that support and nourish the people. So, quite literally, Trickster is the one who's going to say, You think that your shit doesn't stink? It sure does. As Outcast said, Those roses smell like poo, poo, poo. He's going to point right to where we've gotten too holy and hallowed, and he's going to smear it with shit. About an hour after the Capitol riot, Chuck Schumer took the podium and started talking about the great temple of democracy and the staining of the hallowed halls of Congress. And I mean, It's a little overblown, right? One can be horrified by the violence of the Capitol riot and still see this as a pretty over-the-top statement. The temple of democracy, the hallowed halls of Congress, it kind of makes you want to fling a little poo, probably, because those hallowed halls were smeared in shit a long time ago. Trickster is just pointing that out. And don't worry, he'll point out the right's dirt just as he points out the left's dirt. He's an equal opportunity terror down of gods. So he's definitely not a Nazi. He's not fond of uniforms or rules. But that means he's also not a Marxist. He's not a neoliberal or a centrist or a progressive or a socialist or even an anarchist. He's coming for all our gods, even for the atheists' gods. And believe me, they have them. He's not at all interested in making sure he's using all the right language about social issues or in telling other people they really need to do X, Y, or Z. No, he's out back with Loki trying to trick fish into swimming into a net made of dirty underwear. He's looking for cracks to slip through, crossroads at which to pitch his tent. He can recite Allen Ginsberg's Howl from Memory. He's cranking up ODB to top
1: volume. Give take on natural for Yeah from the home of the squad.
0: Remember ODB old Dirty Bastard, Big Baby Jesus, A Son Unique, the grand trickster of hip-hop, member of the Wu-Tang Clan, called Bastard because, as Method Man said, there's no father to his style. And his style was bold, raw, half-sung, half-slurred, improvised glory that cut right to the heart of the matter.
1: When she put that card in there, we got food stamps. And yo, I'm glad to get the food stamps. Why would you want to get free money? I'm in this rat game to get money, you know what I'm saying? I got babies, it's time to take care
0: of my babies. That's ODB at the height of the 90s welfare debate having MTV film him going to get food stamps in a stretch limo. Now, that's pretty good culture disruption. That is someone with something sacred to say, saying it in a way that's going to disrupt everything and piss everyone off. So, Trickster made some glorious entrances into the world of hip-hop. He showed up in 2018, grinning his way through Childish Gambino's video, This Is America, mowing down his own backup choir with an AK-47. But from what I can tell, he's stayed away from rock and roll for quite a long time now. He never listened to Coldplay, not even once. And to be brutally honest, Trickster's probably not a huge fan of Amanda Gorman's poem, The Hill We Climb. Yes, it was perfectly suited to the inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, and we all teared up because it checked all the right boxes. But I can hear Trickster in the back row noisily hawking up phlegm. Why? Because what did Ginsburg say? Poetry is not an expression of the party line. Well, If you're reading a poem at the presidential inauguration, then your poem has become the party line. And The Hill We Climb is definitely the party line. Do I agree with the message? Sure. But it's still party line, and as soon as it is, by Ginsburg's definition, it's something else. Something other than poetry. Ginsburg also said, Democracy? Bah! When I hear democracy, I want to reach for my feather boa. Because at that time, it was disruptive to say that. It shook foundations and boundaries. Now it might be, bah, when I hear Robin DiAngelo open her mouth, it makes me want to throw coyote poo. But remember, I didn't say that. Trickster did. What I'm getting at here has to do with Trickster the artist. Hermes, only one day old, stumbles upon a tortoise shell and starts playing music, and the next minute he's challenging Apollo, the very harmonic order of the universe, to a singing contest. That's what good art does. Only a day old, strumming an old turtle, shaking the universe to its core. I'm talking about that rare art that disrupts culture enough to actually create shockwaves that change people's behavior. And it's rarer and rarer, right? Why? Why is it so rare? Is it the amount of background noise, the numbness, the media oversaturation? Is it the removal of art from ritual context, the idea of art as a detached object to be gazed upon by a neutral observer? What was the last painting that disrupted culture? Chris O'Feely put balls of elephant dung on a portrait of the Virgin Mary in 2000. And Rudy Giuliani, the mayor of New York at that time, blew a gasket. But did that change culture? I think it's more and more difficult for art to change culture for many reasons, many of them having to do with the relationship of art to commerce. But it's also difficult because somewhere along the way, art became bound up with a very particular set of liberal assumptions about the world. And now all art is supposed to reflect these assumptions and reinforce a certain very commonly articulated critique of society as it does so. And there's a simple truth. Art wanes when cultures decide there's a certain way you have to say things. Then you don't have art, you have a press release. But in 1956, to say something like this was culture disruption
1: angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo and the machinery of night, who, poverty and tatters and hollow-eyed and high, sat up smoking in the supernatural darkness of cold water flats floating across the tops of cities contemplating jazz, who bared their brains to heaven under the L and saw Mohammedan angels staggering on tenement roofs illuminated who passed through universities with radiant, cool eyes hallucinating Arkansas and Blake light tragedy among the scholars of war. That's
0: Allen Ginsberg reading Howl. That's counterculture steeping in its own lunacy. It doesn't have to spell it out. It doesn't have to say, let me tell you about the awful consequences of soulless 1950s consumerism. It doesn't have to say, And this is the moral of the story with a big flashing exclamation point. It's refreshing because I guess I just see a whole lot of flashing exclamation points these days. Here's my statement about patriarchy. Here's my statement about class divide. So I'm asking because I want to live in a world with good poetry, bone broth poetry. I'm asking how much poetry is willing to not represent the cause perfectly. How much poetry is willing to not use the right words and how it speaks about, you know, generational trauma and stuff like this? How much poetry is walking backwards howling into the ritual space instead of adding stucco to the pillars of an already existing order? Nowadays, you have art and media and social commentary all trying to assume the mantle of culture disruptor without ever actually disrupting culture. Everyone claims to be culture disruptor because it's good for ratings, it's good for votes, it gets people elected, it gets clicks, and meanwhile, click, 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 tricksters still hungry. Millions are still unfed materially and spiritually. The culture war rages on, While both sides in the culture wars considers themselves the unassailable bastion of rightness, both sides are obsessed with pointing out the other's dirt. But to succeed, Trickster ultimately reminds us, a movement has to own its own dirt. So the Ho-Chunk or Winnebago tell a story of Trickster that has some pretty direct relevance for the culture wars today. In it, Trickster comes up with an ingenious way of hunting buffalo. First, he befriends the buffalo. And then he warns the buffalo that there are enemies around and to be on high guard. And then he puts out scarecrows, so when the buffalo sees them, he thinks, these are the enemies that Trickster warned me about. And he runs away from the scarecrows right into a swamp where he gets stuck. Trickster kills the buffalo. But then his own left and right arms end up arguing with each other over who gets the meat. On and on and on they argue, right against left, back and forth, until they start slashing each other to bits, even though they're connected to the same body. Sound familiar? See a little Fox News in this old folktale? See a culture using false flags and fear-mongering to put dinner on their own tables, but with an unexpected side effect? They run us all into a swamp where left and right slice each other to bits? So, yeah... We're not honoring trickster or enacting trickster by throwing shit at each other on the internet. We're throwing shit at each other on the internet because we've failed to honor trickster. Because despite all our cultural and countercultural revolutions, people are still hungry. Because none of it, all the movements vying for supremacy, none of it is satisfying the deeper hunger. Because the deeper hunger is spiritual. It is a spiritual hunger. are we still hungry? Because we've failed to let what once would have been natural culture disruptions run their course till they satiate us. Cultural disruptions that could have let us out of the mire are quelled before they even begin. What do I mean by that? I mean that when potentially positive culture disruptions do come along, they are immediately monetized and subsumed into the larger consumer culture before they can do their work. Everyone's in it for the fame. Movements sell out before they begin. Make a grand point about social inequality and then cash it in with $10,000 speaking fees. Everybody's got a workshop they're offering. Have a life-disrupting ayahuasca experience and then turn it into a venture capitalist startup to get therapeutic psychedelics to the people and make millions while you're at it. Recognize the power of ritual and then start your five-step system for corporations to reintegrate the sacred into the office. Whatever your profound, shattering, heart-opening experience, it definitely was meant to immediately make you a life coach. And hey, we all play in it to one degree or another, but that's just the thing. The moment we monetize a movement, and then a movement becomes just another cog in the consumption wheel, The moment we turn that originally disruptive art into here's five easy steps for you to reclaim ancient wisdom, guess who is chuckling in the corner? Trickster laughs out loud and says, see, all you're doing is looking for your next meal too. You're just a belly attached to an imperfect cause too. You think you're better than Trickster? Think again. And so, no one gains the upper hand in culture, because culture remains an endlessly involuted intestine, feeding and digesting and excreting its own shit only to feed on it again. A recirculating bowel of takedowns and callouts and outrage only designed to feed on itself of itself. Or that's how Trickster might say it anyway. The Time of Spiritual Hunger Where shall we feed in the time of spiritual hunger? I'm interested in what unmonetized movements would look like. I'm interested in what slow movements would look like. Slow, and I mean really slow. Slow movements that move at the pace of Obatala's snails. Someone start a 10,000-year movement, please. And there's only one condition. It can't involve leaving the planet. I'm interested in culture disruption that goes to the spiritual heart of the matter and stays there, breathing with what is, instead of selling its own step-by-step course. I'm interested in advocating for a return to the widespread worship of stones and rivers. I'm interested in songs that last years instead of minutes. I want to hear the long human howl. I want to hear what it sounds like when we remember who we are and what we're doing here. Tell me, what is that sound? The good news is that these openings we create for Trickster are powerful. When Trickster shows up and is honored, it means that the culture creator can spawn new cultural movement. As Hyde says, quote, the character who can freely play with dirt, they say, is also the culture hero who brings fundamental change. Remember our story about the shit-smearing raven? Well, he's the one who ends up distributing the waters that nourish the people and allow for culture to grow. He creates new culture by disrupting the old, Quote, Trickster the culture hero is always present. His seemingly asocial actions continue to keep our world lively and give it the flexibility to endure. The origins, liveliness, and durability of cultures require that there be space for figures whose function is to uncover and disrupt the very things that cultures are based on. In spite of all their disruptive behavior, tricksters are regularly honored as the creators of culture. So, music comes from Hermes. shoe's holy razor causes a fight in the marketplace that leads to a sacred wedding. My toddler's first act of culture, and by that I mean not the simple act of instinctive response towards food or boobs, his first cultural act is to play games, to try to trick me, to hide and then reveal himself. He learns specifically by crossing boundaries. His body is beautifully wired to trick, and each trick expands his wiring. A culture, a society, is itself a lot like a body. It has a heart, be it ritual or be it monetary, and it has a circulatory system. It has a flow of ideas and goods, and it has systems that are fed by this flow. It has its lumbosacral system of stability, its founding principles and its constitution, right? And then it has its joints, its places of movement and change. Mythologically, Trickster hangs out at the joints. Maui, the Polynesian Trickster, takes the original human bodies that were motionless, jointless, and covered in a web of skin, and he breaks them apart at the elbows, the knees, the ankles, the shoulders, the hips— so that they can move. It's Trickster that takes something stuck and animates it. Trickster, the culture disruptor, makes cultural movement possible. But too much movement at the joints can collapse the whole structure. The place of movement is also the weak point, and Trickster knows that. Which is why Trickster always seems to be targeting the gods' knees, because he knows that the gods and the culture is weak right at the joints. Right where movement happens, Trickster zeroes in. Sirdan, the Caucasus trickster, slays the god Soslan right at his weak point, his knees. The gods might want to fight honorably. Trickster wants to sweep the leg. What does this mean? It means that if trickster is well-treated, a society will renew itself through art and innovation and culture disruption that all have a place within the larger body system of that society. But since Trickster lives at a precarious place of movement and openness, failure to honor Trickster can bring drastic disruption and disorder. Piss him off, and he'll go for the knees. This dynamic of artist-disruptor living at the point of movement is built right into the word for joints, articulations a word that comes from the same linguistic root as art and order. So there is a vision of a well-joined, harmonious universe or culture or body that is architected for stability, but that is also flexible thanks to its various articulation points. And those articulation points, those crossroads, are where orders move, change, and evolve. Those crossroads take shape cosmically in the form of solstices and equinoxes, junctures, which in Latin were also called joints. And because they were junctures with potentials for openness, that's why you had to have rituals. And culturally, those crossroads take the form of socio-historical junctures that are ripe for change. Those crossroads are ruled by the mover and the disruptor, whose art creates new patterns and articulations at places of potential disruption. This is why tricksters in so many cultures hang out at crossroads, right at the point where things could go one way or the other. Trickster lives at the joints of the great body of the deity, culture, society. That's a blessing and it's a caution. Those articulations can be points of weakness, if the society lets trickster get away with murder or shuns him altogether, if it is either too flexible or too rigid, or it can be places of strength, if the body adapts. Yoga teachers talk forever about the balance of flexibility and stability, sukham, stiram, and all that. And, of course, this has permutations within the body and without the body. Hyper-flexibility in culture points to a time when anything goes. Sacred teachings are up for grabs, free speech, and don't tread on me rules the day to the point of destructiveness and chaos. Culture's respond by placing limits, but those limits can lead to their own rigidity, to trying to control vernacular or shun anyone who speaks differently, or to impose linguistic and conceptual orders on already alienated swaths of society rather than seek to genuinely break bread or foster dialogue. The key in yogic terms is to honor flexibility while maintaining a well-architected order. In Hopi ritual terms, it means giving trickster a valued place in the ritual, a place to walk backwards, to tell dirty jokes, to mock the order in order to refresh and renew it. It means recognizing and honoring one's own dirt, realizing that detractors have a place in the dialogue, that no one is above reproach, that we've all got our foibles and shortcomings. For me, it might mean something as simple as laughing at myself on the internet instead of having to be right. It might mean looking across this mess hall of a society and asking, has everyone been fed, instead of does everyone agree with me? Agreement comes when bellies are full, and disagreements are more tolerable and less severe when cores are stable and strong. The fact that all of our relentless cultural battles now are in the joints, at the place of volatile movement, where disruptors take down disruptors, take down disruptors in an endless blood sport, is an indication of a deeper weakness a weakness at the core. Any good yoga teacher knows that a body that has no deep core or deep organ support transfers its stress to the joints. And so our society makes up for its lack of core strength by a perpetual war of movement, mercurial commentary, faux disruption. Wannabe tricksters assume the role of culture disruptor. Our society is obsessed with movement and yet nothing changes. The natural progression of the artist or culture disruptor to become the deep change agent never takes place because we're too busy immediately monetizing the movement at the joints instead of taking the time to assimilate change into the core. Strong-cored societies can handle and even hold as sacred the moments of disruptive movement and flexibility at the joints that Trickster offers. Weak societies' weak movements become increasingly rattled vindictive, accusatory, alienated, and disjointed. Until, like the Ho-Chunk trickster story tells us, their left and right arms don't recognize each other anymore, and they slash each other to bits while their meal rots in front of them. So, pay close attention to strange and initially unrecognizable cultural happenings and movements. Allow for trickster to show up when you least expect them. In a world of absolutisms and monetized outrage— Can our society make a sacred space for Trickster, remembering that he shows up exactly where we exclude him? What would it look like to do so? What would it look like for America to gaze lovingly at its own dirt? Strangely and prophetically, perhaps, when asking how we start to re sanctify Trickster and to ritualize culture disruption, Lewis Hyde said it's difficult to do it these days because, quote, Hopi ritual clowns don't climb backwards into the halls of Congress. Well, now we've got antinomian buffoons walking backwards into the halls of Congress. It might mean it's high time to figure out how to involve Trickster before it's too late. How? annual congressional dunking booth? Something deeper? A removal of the dirt of corrupt campaign contributions, perhaps? One thing that I keep coming back to is hunger. Trickster shows up when societies are hungry. Simply starting to look at what that hunger is gets us on the right path. Feeding the marginalized in all senses of the word feeding satiates and it helps keep us from thinking that our way of filling our bellies is so much better than our neighbors. Remember how often we too are simply looking for our next meal. Trickster invites us to break bread with our opposites, to have those challenging conversations with those who see the world differently than we do. Trickster asks everyone within a society to take a hard look at outrage, offense, at the perpetuation of isms, and whether we keep Our culture porous enough. In this way, Trickster does push us towards compassion, compassion for the other side. The big flag that always goes up here is but what if the other side are Nazis? And no, I'm not talking about coddling Nazis. There's a lot of space in between. Who was the last person who saw things differently than I did? Who worded their vision differently than I would? Who was the outsider to my own order? How did I treat them? Trickster reminds all of us not to be too quick to judge something we don't recognize, something that seems totally foreign to us, something that seems disruptive or antinomian. Don't be too quick to dismiss it, because it's usually the hallmark of big social change. So, remember that music contest between Hermes and Apollo? Apollo wins, and he and Hermes become friends. The pattern-breaker is absorbed into the larger pattern but not before transforming the pattern's harmonics forever. This is the healthy expression of culture disruption. I feel like we are on the cusp of a whole lot of this type of disruption. And who knows, now, where that disruption is going to lead. Who knows who are the new culture creators? Who will it be? I know you're out there, broken down off of 550, steam rising from your old Ford pickup a gleam in your eye, stick around. Have a meal. We need you to show us our own dirt. This episode makes extensive use of Lewis Hyde's definitive book on Trickster, Trickster Makes This World. It's absolutely wonderful and I highly recommend it. And in addition, this episode has reference to many books, articles, songs, etc. These include Digging for Dirt, The Life and Death of ODB by Jamie Lowe, Trading Places, the 1983 film starring Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd, The Yoga Sutras by Patanjali, Roses, a song by Outcast, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the book by Ken Kesey, The Trickster Cycle from the Ho-Chunk Language, translated by John Baptiste, Napalm and Silly Putty by George Carlin, Forward on Sacred Clowns by Bert Gibbons, Images of Ritual Mockery on Greek Vases by Erin Louisa Thompson. Hot Foots of the Gods, Paul Maddock, writing in the New York Times in 1998. ambigare the Euro American Picaro and the Native American Trickster, by Franchot Ballinger in 1991. Confrontation and the Creation of Balance, Ritual Clowning Among the Zuni, by William Guinea. The Ritual Process, Structure and Anti Structure, by Victor Turner. The Avengers, the film series from Marvel Studios, and I thought Tom Hiddleston did a tremendous job playing Loki, even though I never want to see any of those movies again. The Virgin of Mary, a painting by Chris O'Feely. A hidden reference to the 1980s video game Gauntlet, only the true nerds will recognize it. The song Shimmy Shimmy Ya by Old Dirty Bastard. The poem Howl by Allen Ginsberg. This is America, 2018 song and video from Childish Gambino. The Hill We Climb by Amanda Gorman. Sorry, Amanda. The Initiation into the Eleusinian Mysteries by Jan Bremer. And of course, Joker, the 2019 film starring Joaquin Phoenix, which I have not seen and probably never will because my idea of two hours of fun does not involve watching joaquin phoenix slowly go crazy if you liked what you heard today please consider becoming a patron you can find out more at patreon.com slash the emerald podcast that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot slash the emerald podcast there are patronage levels starting for as low as six dollars per month and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site. I hope you enjoy today's episode, and until next time, may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and
1: wonder.